Welcome to One Does Not Simply, where three friends take on the Lord of the Rings and go on some unexpected journeys. I'm Wanda. I'm Navia. I'm Ashani. And I'm Velia. This is episode 31. One does not simply text the rendezvous. As always, there will be spoilers for the entire Tolkienverse ahead. With that said, let's get into it. Hello! (laughs) Uh, Welcome back. We are super excited today to have a guest with us. Um, I'd like to introduce Delia from, well, actually I'm going to have you introduce yourself because you're involved with multiple things. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, fair enough. Hi, I'm Delia. I am the CFO and creative director of Black Girls Create. At Black Girls Create, we're kind of a hub for creators and we like to say that we turn fans into creators through the power of like critical fandom so we do a lot of like nerdy fandom analysis but also like promoting like original creation but even like fan creation we love fan fiction over there fan art so if that's stuff you're into that's what we're doing i also host a podcast called the nerds are typing where we basically go through various properties and um type characters using like personality typing systems the mbti and the Enneagram, if you're familiar with those, it's a lot of fun. Um, even if you don't buy into that stuff and you think it's hokey, it's just a fun lens to do character analysis through. That is super fun. I recently <laughs> encountered someone who like told me all about how Myers-Briggs is like total BS and then spent the next 30 minutes diagnosing my Myers-Briggs type. And I was like, <laughs> okay. <laughs> wow, a little cool. bit of a little bit in both directions. It's funny yeah, to it's so. funny to to think about like um using enneagrams or any other kind of like schematic for personalities to type out fictional characters since we so often use fictional characters to like type our own personalities, right? Like I think that mm-hmm. there's like personality quizzes you can take to be like, what Lord of the Rings character are you? It's actually something we've experienced a lot. Like that part we didn't really necessarily expect, but because people identify so closely with characters, doing it this way, a lot of people have like come to us and been like, You made me realize like XYZ about myself and now I went and researched Enneagram or whatever and now like I've had this whole like catharsis and stuff like that, which is pretty wild because that wasn't necessarily the intent, but because there is that connection with characters, if you go through typing characters with like personality like systems and like it's not psychology, it's pseudoscience, but like, you know, like these like areas of self-study, if you want to call them. Um, yeah, people people really connect with it. So it is very interesting in that way, too. Does anybody ever go like, oh, I thought this character was a lot like me, but then I would thought about the actual type and they're nothing like me at all? Actually, yeah, people get a little bit upset because um, they'll really <laughs> identify with the character like, Like, I don't know, for example, like they might really identify with Hermione, but it turns out like they're not the same type at all. And um, people do sometimes getting their feelings, especially with stuff like Harry Potter or like Lord of the Rings stuff where like you've really spent a long time with it and like really built up this character in your head, Um, which is fine. I, I just I think the exploration is the fun part. Like there's no real right answer. Like, obviously, we think we're right. We made a whole podcast, but like it's all it's all for fun. So. Yeah, I I think that's super fun. And I also think like, it's fine. Like you don't have to be the same type as someone to 
you know, be friends with them or be attracted to them in some way. So (laughs) I think that's even actually probably more interesting, like to figure out why do you identify with this character who is a different type than you, if that's something you're into and like figuring out, like for me, if anybody knows like about the Enneagram, like I really read, I'm not a type eight, which is like a very like assertive type, but I really resonate with characters that I, um, we identify as eights, like Toph from Avatar. um, That's, yeah exactly <laughs> aria from like um a song of ice and fire or a game of thrones like i just love characters like that and then you get to analyze like what about that do you why and for me like i feel like i've grown as a person being able to recognize those things and like take on those traits for myself and like grow as a person in that way i don't know maybe this is like um hokey no, but i just no, I, no. I don't think so it's oh, a go good ahead. point because like there's i think there's like a difference between relating to someone be they you know fictional or a real person that you know and actually identifying with that person being like i'm similar to you i know exactly what you're going mm-hmm. through it's hard to parse those things out from each other yeah, yeah. also so... there's all kinds of this these types of um like typing things that people even do at work and stuff like we just oh. had a whole exercise of a work one and i on one hand, like, I think that's kind of hokey, but on the other hand, it, my my whatever uh, type list thing that I got, listicle that I got from them, basically, like, had a bunch of strategies for how I can, you know, interact with the other types at work. And as much as I hate to admit it, like, a lot of it was spot on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we talk yeah. about this in our, like, podcast, and we also have, like, an Instagram we run, like... I don't love using those things for work because it's so personal, right? And, like, I feel like it gets watered down and, like, it becomes meaningless. And, like, also, like, the capitalism of it all. I don't know. I just – it's not my favorite. But, like, yeah, I think that's our stance. It's, like, I don't know. Like, again, I said it's pseudoscience. Like, it is. It's not – like, I'm not here to be, like, the MBTI is a legitimate. But I feel like if you can gain meaning from something or whatever, like, that's the important part. And if you can, like, whatever it takes, like, work on yourself and self-growth. Like, if it's astrology, cool. Like, I'm not into it, but like, hey, go off. Um, if it's the Enneagram, MBTI, like, whatever the case may be. Um, and we do have people who, like, come over and try to fight with us. Like, uh, that's not real. I'm like, look, I'm just trying to have a good time, analyze some characters, and just have fun. Yeah. Um, okay, lest we make this a typing podcast. Yeah, so sorry. Of it, it, things, I could go on. I was going to say, we should start typing. Super interesting. <laughs> I was just oh, gonna I say, have. Pl- let me... Please let Eowyn be my type. <laughs> um, anyway, so uh, yeah, we are going to get into the chapters real in, in a little bit, but Delia, I want to hear a little bit about how you became a Lord of the Rings fan and what this series means to you. Well, I became, I, I feel like my story is probably pretty similar um, to a lot of people my age. Um, like I was a kid when the movies were coming out. Um, but my dad loved Lord of the Rings and like like obsessed with Lord of the Rings and uh, the movies and uh, showed them to me when I was probably too young. But like, you know, it is what it is. And like being the nerdy child that I was, like I just was instantly hooked. And so that's always been kind of like my comfort movie and whatnot and like something we do together. Like we've on Father's Day just like binged <laughs> all the movies together. Um extended edition of course Uh, Uh, (laughs) um but eventually like actually it's within the last few i've made several attempts to read the books um when i was like in middle school i tried that did not it didn't work out for me 
Um, and I tried in high school again. I did read The Hobbit in high school successfully. Um, it's just Tolkien's writing style is something I feel like you have to get into. Kind of like, I don't know if anybody here reads like historical fiction. Like, I feel like there's like a barrier for people sometimes with the writing style. Like, I love historical fiction, but I can understand how sometimes for people they're like, I can't get over it. And I feel like that's how Tolkien was for me for a while. It wasn't until I was an adulthood that I like successfully read Fellowship and then finally um, Two Towers and recently Return of the King. Um, for me, just pro tip, <laughs> um, the audiobooks, great. Even better, if y'all have recently, I don't know if anybody here has listened to Andy Serkis's audiobook. It recently came out, or like the trilogy. It's so good. It's like, yeah. highly recommend. Yes. Uh, on the episode that comes out next week, we have done a live script reading, and now I regret it because Andy Serkis's is probably <laughs> way better. <laughs> no, I mean, I'm sure it'll be a delight uh, when that comes out. Oh boy! Yeah, we had okay. Livia and her husband read the um. Well, whatever. Anyway, <laughs> you'll you'll find out. <laughs> Excited to hear it. It's terrible. Um, so I guess like you you mentioned. Well, how I found you was because you mentioned on another podcast that I was listening to that you basically like love talking about Lord of the Rings and and love this series. Indeed. So what what makes it like have a special place in your heart that way? I don't know if it's the age, like, I feel like those fandoms that we come into when we're, like, of a certain age, like, for me, like, Harry Potter, Lord of the Rings, um, like, well, Percy Jackson was a little bit later, but, like, I came into them, like, elementary school age, and just growing up with them, even if they, like, are finishing, like, where Harry Potter was still kind of coming out, Lord of the Rings wasn't, but growing up with them and having them, it's almost like having a friend, really, like, throughout your life, like, these, like, works be, there's almost like a relationship there and it's something that you can kind of like for me again like I said a little bit earlier like Lord of the Rings has always been like my comfort <laughs> fandom I suppose you could say like I mean I watch it just to watch it or like read it just to read it but definitely like if I'm having a sad day or a bad week I'm like you know what I need to do I need to go watch Fellowship of the Ring that's what I need to do um and so I think we form these emotional bonds with works even though they're not people like because we interact with them it is sort of a relationship um so and it's just such a rich world and there's a reason why so many like i mean basically tolkien shaped fantasy the fantasy genre as we know it today um and there's a reason for that it's a very rich world i mean you can talk about his world building and perhaps over world building um and how that finds its way into the text sometimes. I mean, do we need, as we're reading, to know all five names of a mountain? Maybe not, but um, I think, yeah, it's just a really rich story with a what may seem now like a basic uh, message, like, oh, good prevails and whatnot. But the way it's told and the point of view characters were given, I think, are very unique and really resonate with the audience, me included. Yeah. And I feel like even though, you know, there is some of that overworld building, I feel like it almost allows people to have so many depths of fandom with this series where mm -hmm. you could be a casual fan of Lord of the Rings or you could actually know all five names of the mountain. <laughs> and it just allows for a lot of like different layers to be uncovered. And every time you revisit it, you can kind of uncover a new layer that way. I think that's super true. Like, that's a very good way to describe it. Because again, like I said, it just started watching, for me, my start was just watching the movies with my dad. And I feel like 
anybody who's like in nerdy fandoms like it knows the experience of like being kind of intimidating and like oh, I want to find out more find, find out more find out more and then eventually you hit like a wall or maybe you're like I, I gotta go to fan fiction because this is it or like fan art or whatever the case may be but usually there's like an end point and what is wild about Tolkien's Legendarium is that despite the fact that this man is not alive <laughs> like this world is still not being I mean of course there's an Amazon series and whatnot but like for the most part it's not being built upon anymore like it's almost endless. Like you just keep digging and there's always more. Yeah. That's actually a good transition into um, this chapter, which actually you picked out as your favorite chapter. Um, This is the passing of the gray company. Um, And in this chapter, basically we get reunited with uh, our, (laughs) I almost called them the golden trio, but that's a Harry Potter thing. (laughs) Uh, But Legolas, Aragorn, and Gimli, as well as Mary and Theoden and the rest of the writers of Rohan. Um, They are riding off to um, basically to Dunharrow and then eventually the target is to get back to Edoras. But um, as they do that, they basically uh, Aragorn decides to part ways with this company due to the arrival of his fellow rangers who are telling him, hey, there has been a message from Elrond that you need to pursue the paths of the dead. <laughs> There's been a um, development. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, breaking news. <laughs> you need to do this. <laughs> and so Aragorn and um, Gimli and Legolas offer to go with him, basically decide that with the rangers, they're going to go on the paths of the dead. Everyone freaks out about it. Eowyn tries to convince him not to go and then tries to convince him to take her with him. Uh, but eventually this company parts ways. Mary goes with Theoden. The rest of um, the riders of Rohan continue on their way. And uh, Aragorn, Legolas, Gimli, and assortment of rangers uh, go off on the paths of the dead, at which point they find the army of the dead, convince them to come fight with them. Um, but one of the things that you were just talking about is the richness of this world that has been built. And one of the very interesting parts of this chapter that I'd like to start talking out about, talking about is really this legend of the paths of the dead, um, and the army of the dead and its origin story, because I think it is a very, like, I don't think we've seen anything like this before in this work, right? We haven't truly seen the mythology around this world in this way. Um, and Delia, you mentioned that there was a song in this chapter that, <laughs> that well, I don't know if it's a song or a poem, but either way, we haven't seen one for a while. <laughs> and uh, you wanted to talk a little bit about that. So I'll, I'll start with you. Like, what, what is it about this chapter and this particular lore that is so interesting to you? I just really like, well, okay. Um, my Originally why I like this this chapter, and then I'll go into the question uh, so much is, again, like I said up top, like I come from it, I come to Lord of the Rings, like I read, nope, watched the movies first. Um, and the reading the books, like it's impossible not to, you know, do the comparison thing if that's where you're coming from. And I just found like when I finally read this chapter, like, as cool as this whole sequence is in the movie, like, you know, obviously the visuals, et cetera, like they won so many Oscars for reasons, but um, I just feel like there is no world building there, right? Like you just kind of like there's ghosts and we're going to go get the ghosts and it's going to be great. We're not going to like, they explain it, but not really that in depth. Um, And, but when you come to this chapter, it's just, 
you know, kind of like you said, like, it's not really something that we've really seen. I feel like the vibe, um, which is kind of the point of this whole section of story. I know y'all say at the top, like, this is very spoiler heavy. So, um, you know, at <laughs> this whole section of story, right in. <laughs> yeah. is the whole point, right, is to show, like, the darkness, like, seeping in, like, at all corners, right? Um, like, Sauron's influence is, like, it's here, basically, like, uh, things are about to be very bad. And so I feel like this chapter has, like, a really, I don't know, dark tone. I don't know if that's, like, dark for, you know, Tolkien maybe is not, like, what we're used to nowadays. But, like, I mean, compared to, like, where we've been in the story, like, it's definitely gotten a lot darker. And that coupled with just, like, the poem or song or whatever it is when, like, telling the history and the story of, like, Oathbreakers and all that, I feel it just gives so much, what's the word, like texture, <laughs> flavor, like, I don't know, like, I feel the ominous presence of that, and the weight, the weight, that's a great, great word, the weight of that history and what that means as far as the stakes, whereas, again, I, I draw the comparisons, I don't think you feel that in the movie, right, like, it's just like, ghosts, because we need them. Right. Yeah. Um, I mean, wait. I'd like to remind everyone that there is a scene in the extended cut where they're just surfing on, on skulls, skulls that are like pouring. <laughs> it is, it's super dope. It is um, bonkers. <laughs> I'm like, I, I get why they cut it, but I'm like, this is the cu- type of extra that I love. Um, yeah. yeah. It's But it's also, it's, it kind of takes away from the seriousness right. of this and, and really that weight that you're talking about. This this chapter kind of reminded me of the chapter in Shelob's Lair where they were like kind of mm-hmm. approaching um, approaching an unknown entity and the way the descriptions kind of were similar in terms of the way the characters were reacting. Um, Ishani, Wanda, thoughts? <laughs> Sorry. Oh yeah, I've got, I've got a lot of thoughts. I just wanted to let you guys talk about it. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, like, I, I definitely agree that there's a lot of weight in this chapter and that you know, you can feel this darker tone set in. And I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that you have this history, right, around the army of the dead who broke an oath to be loyal to Elendil. Wait, was it Elendil or Isildur? Lore, fail. Um, Isildur? I I think Uh, they're bound by that because they were supposed to fight against Sauron, right? Right, but they were secretly kind of into Sauron, so they broke that oath, and they were punished by being forced to remain undead until they uh, finally came through on their promise to one of Isildur's heirs. So this is this has implications for them, and it also has implications for Aragorn, who kind of realizes that he can't not go and take advantage of this of this, uh, this opportunity, which is sort of his destiny. I don't know. It's the first time that we've like really heard about debts being a major theme in this world. And to the degree that like a debt or like a moral debt, like, or like a a betrayal, uh, actually physically stays with you. I want to say that it's one of the most religious things that has come up in the book so far. Yeah. Delia, what do you think about that? I agree. Like, I, you know, I mean, infamously, like, Tolkien has said that, like, this is not an allegory, which, like, fair. Noted. Heard <laughs> Except it. Except that it uh, kind of is. Completely. Yeah. <laughs> like... but, but it kind of <laughs> is. Like, you have, 
I mean, first of all, like the implications of like, yes, there's there's lore about like how the afterlife and stuff works, but the the implications that like, I mean, it's hard not to make like it is like that's basically what it is. It's a Christian allegory, like the fact that you can sin and therefore like not and you'll be punished for this, and then also to have Aragorn as what essentially like he's like is like a Christ-like figure, right? Like he gathers the like sinners around him and they follow him and are forgiven for their sins, right? Like that's essentially what's about to happen. Um, and I think it's super interesting because, yeah, like I you it ha- we haven't seen that before, and I don't know. I don't know, like, in, I feel like in a, in a different story, it wouldn't fit in, like, because it is different, but it melds into the story, I think, because of when it was placed. Like, I feel like if this had been brought up, like, oh, there's this, these, like, ghosts that, like, um, these undead people that, you know, they have to fulfill their oath, don't know if that's going to come up. If, if that had been brought up earlier in the story, I think it would have felt out of place and kind of like, okay, well, that was weird. Um, but I feel like, Tolkien really masterfully like introduces I mean again I did I did say like sometimes he overworld builds and that's true but I feel like where he chooses and how he chooses to do it is pretty masterful and that you as a reader are ready to accept this new facet of the world if that makes sense Um, actually this has just occurred to me but I, I've just realized this. I was not smart enough to realize it while reading, but this also could be a callback to Gollum's oath that he just swore and the potential mm. consequences of breaking that promise, right? Because we were talking a lot about like what what happens if he doesn't <laughs> abide by this. And I wonder if this was included as an intentional, like no promises mean something in this world. Yeah, and I think there's like a different, you could read it like in, in one of two ways. You could read it as like, oh, there's a god in this world who will punish you if you break an oath, right? If you betray uh, something good that you were going to do, then you individually will be punished for that because of some reason. Or, and this is, I guess, the like, explanation I favor is that there's some kind of balance, this moral, there's like a moral gravity in Middle Earth that if you betray an oath that you made, it's going to hold that shit that you promised and trust until such time as you can make good on it. Right. Like it's, it's almost like the universe is saying, if you can't make good on your promise, uh, like the magic that undergirds this universe is going to step in. Tom Bombadil's coming you. for you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. See, I feel like I have to, uh, I've been thinking and listening and mulling things over. It's been a long day y'all. Um, <laughs> and, So like, but I feel like I want to push back on some of these things because, you know, I came to this chapter and to me, the themes that I was taking away from it were not so much a darkness or not so much like this, like punitive overarching power, but it felt much more like personal in the way that I associate with the chivalric stories of King Arthur. I associate it with Greek mythology a lot. Um, but this feeling of it's not just some random chance that the oath breakers get punished. It's very specifically someone being like, you promised me this and you didn't pay up. And so now I'm going to make sure that you suffer for it. Like there's an implication of a curse almost being laid on them. And that's why this happens. They're in purgatory, right? Basically. like What? They're kind of in purgatory, basically, where they just cannot continue on. 
Yeah, I mean, it felt very like Orpheus and Eurydice getting led out of the path, right? And you have to be called to this place because he couldn't just go to the stone and summon them, right? He has to walk the paths of the dead and get to the stone and then bind them. Uh, And it's not really so much a convincing as it is, well, you can just continue to be here stuck or you can finally make good and come with. But even earlier, right, there's all of these moments of Mary pledging his loyalty to Theoden and then Eowyn and Aragorn having this conversation about valor and responsibility and duty and honor. And then here again, what does it mean to have honor? What does it mean to have a duty to someone that you fail to fulfill? And what does that look like? And so this whole chapter, I think it keeps coming back to this notion of like, yes, obviously they're under a lot of pressure. You can see Aragorn is under a lot of strain. There is a sense of weight to the stakes. But I think it's also a chance for Tolkien to really kind of explore something not so much positive as it is just this neutral idea of what does it mean to be chivalrous or what does it mean to have honor or to have a responsibility in this moment where we finally fucking finally see Aragorn take some responsibility (laughs) and also courage right like this kind of reminds me of um the the concept of ghosts in Harry Potter where they're if you remain a ghost it's because you were you were afraid of what's beyond right and you that that was the coward's choice basically and we kind of like what you're saying here we see in this chapter and i love that you said this because i i didn't think about it but we see so many little moments of bravery where we see like mary decide to fight for theoden we just we see gimli decide to follow legolas into the paths like every character in this chapter we see them just kind of step up in small ways um and then that like set against this backdrop of these people who didn't do it (laughs) right is like really poignant I think also, like, I think that's interesting because it makes it, instead of it being, like, the moral implications of the world as a whole, it also, like, has this tone of, like, vengefulness, like, and I don't know, even though, like, you know, it's, it's for the greater good, but, like, I mean, it's vengeance that's, it's essentially serving this purpose. Well, that's the, that's his. How did he know that they weren't going to show up, (laughs) How did he already know that these people were sketchy and that he had to, like, lay a curse on them? Yeah, Sildur's long game. I think it's because he called them to muster, right? So, like, the whole thing that Aragorn says is, okay, how long is it going to take the armies of Rohan to muster? And so you have to bring all of your troops together from these disparate places, you know, back in the day before, like, helicarriers and shit. Uh, (laughs) You you can just send out a text and... uh... Yeah, right. You can't just be like, y'all, we're rendezvousing here. Um, so, like, be there or I lay this curse upon you. Yeah, right. <laughs> this is me every time I had to wait for Navia when we were kids. This, this was my parents' fault, not my fault. I know, but you were chronically late, and believe me, you're lucky that curses are not real in this world. I was beholden to them for rides. What can I say? <laughs> I think we're on a little debt to each other. (laughs) Yeah, I think mostly what it is is just this sense of there are these big forces in the world like honor and responsibility. But at the end of the day, it's a very 
human individual action that makes them work, right? That chivalry doesn't exist unless people do, right? That people are the reason why, like, honor and responsibility and duty and all these other things matter because we have made them matter. And in the same way, like, oath-breaking matters because we make it matter. But, I mean, that is important, right? Because, like, there's so many questions in this book around how much power you have, how like, how much free will you have, like, the importance of choice. Could Isildur have chosen not to curse these people? Sounds like probably. Yeah, I think so. But who would, how would, how could he be a king and not do that? You gotta curse everybody, in case those motherfuckers don't Just show up. Just in case they don't show up. <laughs> you gotta put a preeminent curse. Actually, we have those in our society. They're called contracts. Yeah. Um, yeah. You have to yeah. put a preeminent curse on everyone. Uh, Every time you sign an NDA, you are actually just agreeing to be to cursed. cursed. <laughs> Did you read the terms and conditions? There was a curse at the end. <laughs> no, the, like, the, the Army of the Dead signed the ultimate NDA. Where you, you can't disclose beyond the Stone of Eric for the next thousand years. <laughs> Uh, if you don't show up to the battle. Dang, that's rough, buddy. Um, <laughs> I, um, yeah, I think it, I think there's a lot of, I think we're probably getting to the core of it, right? Because I think, from what I understand and what Tolkien intends, I think our choice, like, like part of, one of the themes is that our choices are supposed to matter, right? So it would seem then that, yes, it's human choice to curse people, which, like, yikes. Um, but, um, I think the power is in the choice of man to be able to do that, um, I guess. Speaking of choices, I remembered what I was going to say about courage, because yeah, you yeah. were talking about um, how, like, there's these small moments of bravery and, like, the importance of that. And I was just going to say, I think that's the bigger theme, which kind of goes with what we're talking about, like choosing to curse people. But like what defeats evil is not really like these big battles like they do, but it's really the small choices of like Gimli to go forward and Mary to go forward. Like these small acts of bravery from people who would otherwise maybe not consider themselves brave. I mean, Gimli probably would, but you know, and I think that's the message, right? Like our small choices can affect the bigger scheme of like history in the world you can end up cursing a whole people to live eternally or you might you know defeat sauron like you don't know what your little choices along the way are going to do right yeah and i i want to actually shift a little bit to talking about a different type of choice because there is we get to see another character basically not get to make a choice in this chapter where we have this very interesting interaction between eowyn and aragorn uh, I'm gonna talk about this because I love Eowyn. She's my favorite character. I love ever. that you all love Eowyn because I also love Eowyn, and I feel like this is an unpopular opinion. And so, what? <laughs> Who doesn't love Eowyn? I'm coming for them. <laughs> In my experience, because I'm like yeah. I love Eowyn, but anyway, yeah, I literally have. A half sleeve tattoo of Eowyn at this point. So. You know who Amazing. doesn't love Eowyn? In my opinion, Peter Jackson. I was exactly. like watching some That's of the scenes the with Eowyn it, when like I was reading this chapter, and I was like, I thought that Eowyn was the coolest when I watched the movies, but now in comparison to the books, like the movies seem to like kind of shaft her character a little bit. It's a mess. <laughs> yeah. Oh, but man. anyway, but we should talk ta- about yeah. this conversation because I have some thoughts. I, I think we all have m- much thoughts, much feelings, many, many much thoughts. Yeah. 
So there's a conversation between Eowyn and Aragorn here where basically Eowyn, at first, we already know that she's like kind of infatuated with Aragorn and she finds out that he's going on the paths of the dead and she begs him not to go because she doesn't want him to die. Um, Interestingly, Aragorn decides not to reveal to anyone why the hell he's going on these paths. He's just like, no, I'm gonna do it. Don't worry about it. To be Uh, fair, Elro here is like, hey... My dad wanted me to remind you about the Path of the Dead. Now we can never talk about this out in the open again. So he is just following instructions. But he says he's going. Like, he tells them yeah, where he's going. Yeah, but he's not going to talk about why, because it's secret. All right. Anyway, so he, she's begging him not to go. And he's basically like, no, I got to go. And you have to, like, go do your job, which is to take care of the people of Rohan. And she gives this, like, incredibly bitter monologue about how she's basically been relegated to being a dry nurse um she has like uh, there's this there's this line that i want to pull up because man this line um she says uh, she says when the men have died in battle and honor you have leave to be burned in the house for the men will need it no more whoa <laughs> that's a line <laughs> um And she gives this whole speech about it, and she's like, take me with you. Take me with you on the paths of the dead. And Aragorn basically shuts her down, and he's like, absolutely not. That's not, like, first of all, I can't make that decision. You need the permission of Theoden and uh, Aomer to do this for some reason. And also, like, go do your job. Like, you have a job, and the people need you. And I... uh, (laughs) Where to even start with this? <laughs> so, I, you you have you had thoughts, Ashani? Do you want to start us off? Yeah, I mean, I think my thoughts were that they both had a point, right? Eowyn's claim about what Aragorn is saying is the role of women as far as like their valor is totally valid. Like she is correct when she says, like, what you're telling me is that the only way I can have valor is when the entire army has fallen, like, and then I won't have any recognition for it, but at least I'll die knowing I've been valiant. And she's like, uh, no, that's kind of fucked up, dude. Um, And she's right. But I also think that Aragorn has a very valid point about part of honor and duty is to do the job that you said you were going to do. Like, she has taken on responsibility for all of these non-combatants. They said, okay, who will they trust? They'll trust Eowyn. So she's the one we're putting in charge. And she didn't say, like, no, 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 I don't want to do this. She agreed. And it, he makes the good point that even if they had put, a like, a male soldier in her place... It would be a dereliction of duty for him to decide that he wanted to go ride off for glory and leave them. I also think that it's just kind of wrong for her to compare this job she's been given with, like, being a dry nurse. Like, she's being tasked with being a steward, essentially. She's she's being asked to take care of an entire realm while Theoden goes off to war. And that's no small task. And honestly, I kind of was like... Why are you scoffing at this? Like this, you're not being asked to like wait hand and foot on someone. Like you're being asked to organize an entire peoples. 
No, the answer is in the text, because Aragorn basically says, uh, sit tight in the case that we all die, and then you have to like defend the last of our people, then you'll get to earn a little bit of valor. As opposed to, by the way, what Theoden says in the movie, because they kind of recreate this conversation with Eowyn and Theoden in the extras. Um, Theoden says, like, this is... I forget what his actual line is, but he basically says, I'm leaving you in charge of, of Rohan. That's no small thing. I'm doing that because you're great <laughs> already. This is already valorous what you're doing. And that's a little bit that's a little bit revisionist, I think, of the original text, because Aragorn, uh, Tolkien has Aragorn say, not say like what you're doing right now is valorous, but like what you would do in the case of a, a genocide would be valorous. And I think that's the point where she goes, no, 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 this is bullshit. Yeah. But I think it doesn't take away, like, the fact that he is wrong about, like, valor doesn't also take away from the fact that she is maybe, I mean, also a wrong. selfish, it feels like, in wanting to make this decision. Like, she is thinking about personal glory. And that's not, in a chapter where I think we keep coming back to, like, leadership, right? And what does it mean to be a ruler? And what does it mean to be a king? That's not great leadership. Thinking about personal glory over, like, the needs of your people, right? Like, they are, it's not just, like, saying that as, like, oh, yeah, I'm a citizen. It's like, no, no, no. You're in charge. You're part of the royal family. They are your people. But I think there's, like, I mean, there's, it's it's interesting that Tolkien wrote maybe the most interesting scene with a woman in it in this particular way, because he's, he's transcribing what I think is like still today, not still like this is not history, but like today and here and now is like a, a problem that a woman might have, right? You don't want to do something horrible to another person. For instance, like you might have a child and you think, okay, I want to go, I want to go and like have this career, but I don't want to abandon my child. You know, you don't want to do something that's a dereliction of duty in order to do the thing that you want. But also there has been um, every, like, you know, the, the patriarchy has basically conspired to put you in this place where the job that you have, you've, you've been kind of signed up for these things that you never asked to be signed up for. And I think that's, that's very hard. And it's interesting that Tolkien is, I mean, you got to respect it. He's getting at that here. Dude, this is a feminist monologue. It's <laughs> it's wild that Tolkien can write monologues like this, and then he just straight up forgot to put more women in the books. But, like, <laughs> it's here. <laughs> Every time Aragorn makes a vague reference to, like, he says at one point, like, oh, my heart would rather be in Rivendell. And I'm just like, you're not going to say her name, are you? Not even, like, not even going to. This gonna... whole book. No, not even going to, like, reference. Like, just. Yeah. The idea of women, the the vibe of women are there. Like, that's enough. Like, we've got the vibe down. Um, I agree with everything y'all are saying. Like, I love talking about Eowyn. I think because she is a flawed character, like, I think it's correct to say she's short-sighted. Like, this is not, like, just because, I because it's also, like, that's how men have defined valor, right? Like, going out and, like, um, like leading the charge, like, going and dying for their co- country or whatever the case may be. And um, have said, like, men get valor, men do this, and women do not. And she feels, like, constrained by that, obviously. Um, And so her response is longing to be able to seek out that valor rather than just redefining it for herself. Because, like y'all are saying, like, it is still an important task that she's being left with. Like, there there is valor in a lot of things. And obviously, we're coming at it from, like, a 
modern like age ideals, uh, of course. So that's easier said than done. Um, but I think on her journey as a character, I mean, she achieves valor, right? Like that's, I mean, spoiler alert, she achieves valor. Um, but I also feel like she grows as a character and I think they give her the win, like Tolkien gives her the win, but I also think she understands her purpose greater by the end too. Mm -hmm. I think what hurts in this chapter is not necessarily like what she is saying, where she's like, man, I'm going to have to stay at home and blah, blah, blah. It's that the choice is being taken away from her. Because I think in the, like we were talking about how the choices are the theme of this chapter and maybe this series, right? Where everybody, Frodo chooses to continue on, Sam chooses to continue on with him. Everybody is making these choices for themselves. And then we see this character basically be told, no, but you don't get to choose. Which I think that that's what was like, for me the gut punch of this interaction was not anything where I was like, yeah, she should get to go on the paths of the dead, but she should get to choose whether she does or not. Right. I was just thinking like, it would be a little hypocritical also to not point out that there is a layer of choices that are made out of obligation that are choices, but are not really choices. And part of the reason why I feel like I have to hold Eowyn to that standard is because I've been ragging on Aragorn for two books and a chapter now about how, you know, you're going to sit here and tell me you're King of Gondor. Well, you need to act like it then. And you have obligations that you need to follow through on to your people and to your country if you're going to claim that title. And so there is a little bit of me kind of sitting here going, well, you know, I I get that Eowyn feels like she doesn't have a choice. And you're right, too. Like, she does have fewer choices. She was kind of told, okay, this is what we want you to do is take on the responsibility for these people. And there is that expectation of if you're going to be in a leadership position, yeah, but whether Ar- that's... <laughs> Aragorn exercised his choice by dicking around as a ranger for 80 years. <laughs> yeah, and I'm yeah, pissed really, at him about it. Really, really the... <laughs> The, this, this was some hypocrisy and Aragorn being the one to say this to her. Maybe that's why they had it be Theoden in the movies. Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think that's a very classic conflict, though, right? Like, just in in life, but also, like, in literature, like, the conflict of duty versus, like, the freedom of choice and that internal conflict. But it is interesting this, to talk about it, like, hearing both of these sides talking about it. When What if your duty is very limited and defined by a patriarchal society that's also oppressing you. Like, what then? And what does that mean? And is that fair? And I don't know the answer because, like, like Ishani was making the point of, like, but that's your duty. And I'm like, that's true. It is. I I usually land that way, right? Like, you know, there's valor in doing your duty. Your people need you. And just own that. And, like, yes, you may. You can own that sounds terrible, but kind of like you can own the box you've been put in, right? And redefine it for yourself, I guess, is, is the thing. But also, like y'all said, everyone was dicking around like being a ranger. So like, is that fair, though? I don't know. Also, also, I think it's like, if you're gonna, if you're gonna derelict to your duty, just go do it. You know, don't ask Aragorn, don't ask the guy you're love, in love with for permission. Uh and she does. She eventually she does just go do it. But yeah, just just uh just go do that as opposed to trying to get some guy who's part of the problem to validate your valor. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and what I do does she see important. in Aragorn, man? What does she see in Emily? <laughs> but I like no, I genuinely think like 
what y'all are saying is a really important part of it too, though, right? That you can sit there and go, well, I am going to make a different choice. And what are the consequences of making that different choice? Because we see that Aragorn really basically faces no consequences other than me yelling about it for (laughs) like 18 episodes. Well, and like the realm of Gondor decaying slowly. Well, you know, but he personally does not. That's the thing, right? It's like when when you do not fulfill that duty, other people are potentially going to suffer for it. But he himself doesn't really face a lot of negative consequences for dicking around in the woods for several decades. (laughs) Right? And I think there's this piece of like, so when Eowyn does, spoilers, run off and join the fight, it's like, yeah, I mean, I'm not thrilled about it. But in the sense that she is not doing anything different from what Aragorn has done. And if he gets to get away with it, then damn it, so should she. It does beg the question who she left in charge. That's <laughs> 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 true. There's nobody Takes left. Takes a random child <laughs> off the street and goes, you. Oh, You're in charge. You fill this duty. I think also, like, as I, it's also a story, right, of, like, I mean, yes, we can talk about, like, what does she see in Aragorn and, like, why, like, why did we make her, like, pining after Aragorn? She was a strong enough character without that. But also the relatable story of, like, feeling like you found your person who understands you and will back you and, like, that emotional betrayal, right, of, like, them not being who you thought they were and not having, like, being in your corner like you thought they were. So it's also a gut punch for that reason for me, knowing knowing that feeling, having experienced that in life and knowing that that's what she's just experienced beyond the also being oppressed of it all (laughs) yeah and who am i to judge her for pining after aragorn when i did that for 20 years of my (laughs) life (laughs) i think any woman that's ever or any person really has ever had a crush on someone who was like kind of an uh an idealized version of themselves (laughs) <laughs> yeah, no, I specifically well, mean too. Aragorn, though. I pined after Aragorn. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I want to... So we're, we're almost at time here, but I want to talk about one other choice that was made in this, um, which is, I think, actually interesting when you're talking about duty and like what is what you're kind of beholden to do based on your role, which is the choice of Mary um, to swear his fealty to Theoden. Because Mary and actually in the previous chapter, also Pippin are two characters that actually don't really have any responsibility or any duty to be here or to be doing any of this. And they almost like, they actually put themselves in positions of responsibilities with these choices to swear their allegiance to these two kings. And I wanted to talk a little bit about like the meaning of them doing that and also that they're the best. Well, first of all, I just love Mary and Pippin. Like, I just want to put that out there, you know, I'm new here, Mm -hmm. new in this space, but just like, it's always good to like shout out how Mary and Pippin are the best. Um, <laughs> Hobbit appreciation squad. Absolutely. Um, I think, I mean, kind of like I was saying earlier, like these small choices, brave choices at that are like what ultimately defeat evil. I think that's the story. Or at least to me, that's what I take away from the story. And I think kind of like you were saying, like, they don't have to be here, right? Like, it's been a lot. I mean, they never had to be there. That was the whole point. Like, the fellowship, like, chose. Like, it's no oath binds you, whatever, whatever. But, like, specifically them to absolutely have no reason to be there after a certain point. Like, their homie is not around. They aren't, you know, warriors. They really have 
no offense to them, they don't really have much to offer their cause, uh, you know, at first glance, right? Um, but I think what we're seeing is that is is the process of them learning and growing. Like they've seen the world. Like before, they were just sharpful, right? Like they didn't know anything about like the big people world. Like who cares? Um, but them having seen what is happening and see how it's affecting their friends and just people around them and taking that responsibility on and and feeling. I think connected to the world bigger than them metaphorically, but also literally. (laughs) Um, And um, you know, making that choice to like, I may play a small part in, in this world, like the Shire may be in the far corner and nobody knows about it, but I can still help and I can still lend what I can to this cause. And I don't know, you know, thematically there's more to say on it, but it just makes me love them so much more. There's this amazing moment in this chapter where at the beginning, like they're being approached by the Rangers and they don't know that it's the Rangers yet. And Mary has this moment where he's like, oh, man, like, what if we have to fight these people? And his first thought and his first fear is not that he's going to die, not that he's going to get hurt or anything like that. It's like, what if I end up alone (laughs) in the woods somewhere and I don't know what to do? And I thought that was like such a beautiful characterization of him where he's just been separated from his like best bud ever in the world and he is kind of a little bit lost and the first decision he makes is basically to declare Theoden his father right and it's it it just says so much about him that he's like he doesn't care about the (laughs) he doesn't even really know what's going on he doesn't really care that he might have to ride into battle or anything like that he's just like I want a family And I love that. (laughs) Well, and you know what's really interesting about that initial reaction is that he thinks about that in response to, like, I could run away from the battle. And then he's like, no, because if I run away, what happens if I'm just on my own in the woods? That would be even worse. I might as well stay and fight and die. Like, that's his thought process. And, you know, considering all of the discussion of personality types at the beginning of this episode, which now you have to keep in, ha 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 ha. Um, <laughs> look at me. Uh, manipulating episode content 50 minutes later. Like I wasn't going to keep that in anyway. <laughs> yeah, I know you were going to keep it in anyways. Uh, but what, what's interesting to me about this parallel between Mary swearing fealty to Theoden and Pippin swearing it to Denethor is how different their reasoning is. Right. That Pippin is like all stung pride and like, you don't think I'm good for anything. Like, let me show you what I can do. Yeah. And for Mary, it's also I don't think I'm good for anything. And the fact that you think like you're willing to find me a place and you think I could be helpful means so much to me that out of gratitude, I'm going to swear my service And just that difference in terms of, like, they're very similar situations in a lot of ways, and they're very similar actions. But the the rationale to me is really lovely because, you know, we don't always get to see Tolkien doing really good character work. And this is one of those moments, right, where I'm like, it's really good character work because you can see how distinct Pippin and Merry are from each other. And they clearly just adore each other right they grew up together they're best friends 
but they're also different people. And I really liked getting to see that difference here. I don't know what happened, but like from the last couple books to now, but Tolkien has suddenly like stepped up his writing game so hard with like there's great callbacks in this chapter. There's great characterization. It reads really quickly. I'm A plus work. (laughs) Yeah. I want to wrap up by just asking you, Delia, who your favorite character is and what their personality type is and your favorite typing. Oh, the pressure. Oh, my gosh. Um, I have I have. So, OK, I have several favorites um, in Lord of the Rings, but I'll just pick one um, who we're talking about this chapter. Um, Eowyn is one of my favorite characters. Um, I don't think she gets enough love in the fandom. I think she's very complex. I think people like to make her seem less complex than she is. It's partly the Peter Jackson of it all, of course, but I think also just in general, like the one, like one of the only like it, women characters in this story, like it's they're they're easy to look over, unfortunately. Um, her type, uh, I can't actually remember her MBTI off the top of my head, but we typed her as a type eight, which is controversial. But um, we talk a little about it a little bit, and I think like episode eight, which is about type eights go figure, um, uh, why I think she is an eight. And eights are, if you don't know the Enneagram, in brief, eights are like assertive, they fear uh, lack of agency and power, um, and they strive to be like independent and things like that. Um, and I think that's very much her. Like she, she literally says she fears a cage, like, hello, period. Um, so that's it in brief. But like, I would love to like, maybe one day, like when we come off hiatus, like we can like have you all on and talk about it because it's very it's very much a good time yeah thank you so much for coming on this episode it was so fun talking about this everybody please go check out both black girls create and the nerds are typing um really really good to have you on and have this conversation oh thank Uh, you for having me do you want to plug anything And anything and everything black girls create is doing we are doing a lot currently we are like um, kind of winding down for the year, but we do stuff with like NaNoWriMo. We have a bunch of like nerdy podcasts. Currently, Doctor Who. I mean, at the time recording, Doctor Who is airing, and we. I'm. I also have. Oops, forgot a Doctor Who podcast that I'm on now. Hello, uh, called uh, Who Watch. Anyways, you can find all of that at BlackGirlsCreate.org. Find what works for you. Find what you like. Um, I'm not on everything. We have. We're a team of five, so you know get in where you fit in as they say um but as for my podcast you can find us on instagram at the nerds are typing or on twitter at nerds are typing and i'm also on twitter at delia is typing ironically <laughs> thanks for listening to one does not simply this episode was edited by navia you can find us on twitter at odns pod and tumblr at one does not simply pod special thanks to andrew sneha delia and all our listeners for joining us on this journey If you like what you hear, give us a rating or a review on whatever platform you listen to.